Just to finish off that part of Luke 15. Tonight we're looking at verses 20 to 24. I want to read from the verse 11 again just to get the whole of this parable of the prodigal son, at least this first part of it. So we'll read from verse 11 to 24. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. Was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now previously, as we saw verses 11 to the first part of verse 20, we took that under the um, headings of reconciliation, um, uh, of rebellion and repentance, where we saw the younger son in his rebelliousness against the father's house where he'd been brought up, asked for all that was going to come to him by way of inheritance, He took that away and squandered it with reckless living. The freedom which he thought he was going to have turned out to be bondage. And we saw how that relates to our own sinful and fallen condition and to our own minds until God comes to show us our true situation. And uh, we saw that that was a a freedom which imprisons. And then secondly, we saw uh, down to verse 20, a servitude which sets us free which we begin to realize is indeed freedom when we come to know Christ as our Savior, when we come to give our lives into His hand, we come to know that our service to Him, which once we thought of as being bondage, is in fact the freedom of which the Bible speaks, the freedom to do what we ought to do in the service of God. And tonight we're looking at reconciliation and restoration. Now we did refer to verse 2 as really the key verse to the chapter. Uh, Verse 2 which says that the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled about Jesus saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. And we said that that's a representation not of God the Father as such but especially and particularly of Jesus himself. He was receiving sinners to himself. He was receiving the people Verse 1 there, tax collectors and sinners, all kinds of sinners, 
that the Pharisees despised and looked down on. They were coming to Jesus. They were accepting Jesus. They were giving themselves to him as disciples. They were believing his message. And so they committed themselves to him. But the Pharisees refused such. And the representation there of Jesus receiving those tax collectors and sinners and their like is here um, in the father figure in the parable of the prodigal and especially in the verses that we see tonight uh, where he came to his father and while he was still a long way off his father saw him and felt compassion so there's the welcome there there's the people coming to Jesus represented by that and Jesus welcoming them just as you find in the key verse and you find in the rest of the passage we're not going into it the older son who was he heard the music and the dancing the celebrations and he would not go in. That's representative of the Pharisees, uh, where uh, the father said to them, um, to, to, to this figure, the older son, who refused to go in. His father came out and he entreated him, and he still refused. Um, but uh, the father said, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Uh, that was speaking to likes of the Pharisees and the Jews who wouldn't receive Jesus they were brought up under the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures that revelation of God God had as it were made them his covenant family but they refused to accept Christ they would not come to him and so they stayed outside the kingdom and this part of the passage now as we come to it reconciliation and restoration talks about Christ as Represented by that father figure in the parable. There are three things tonight that we're going to look at with regard to Christ particularly. First of all, Christ's eagerness to receive repentant sinners. Secondly, Christ's welcome for repentant sinners. And thirdly, Christ's joy in restoring repentant sinners. Remember we said this morning how the verses down to verse 20 from verse 17 to 20 are such a superb representation for us of repentance where we come to a realization of what the truth is about ourselves and about God uh, and then having had that realization uh, we also then come to uh, make our way back to God we come uh, to uh, a resolve or a resolution to go back to the Father's house uh, which involves not only coming back to uh, to him but uh, making our confession and then there's thirdly the return in repentance because he actually did come back to his father at the beginning of verse 20 realization resolution and actual return and now that he's returned we find Jesus represented firstly in the father's eagerness to receive the son back the son that was lost that he said was lost and is found was dead and is alive so much in this parable that's um, full of teaching really about ourselves and about our relationship with God and its restoration and all that God gives in relation to that. So Christ's eagerness to receive repentant sinners. Now you see what it says here. Verse 20, he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father saw him 
while he was making his way back and long before he reached back to his father's house his father actually saw him Christ's eagerness to receive repentant sinners is represented by that because here is Jesus represented as looking out for repentant sinners for sinners coming back to himself such is his eagerness to receive us back to himself that his eye is upon us long before we reach him what a comforting thought that is tonight, that God, that Jesus, the Savior, does not let us out of his vision, even though we let him out of our vision. His eye was upon, this father's eye was upon this lost son, the son that had gone away from home so deliberately, that had done such things, has squandered his living, brought dishonor upon his father, and here he is coming back. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. What a great comfort that is, that his father had never lost sight of him. He had never been out of his father's memory or mind. He was always thinking about him. Always concerned that he would come back. Always concerned as to what he was doing. And so it is for yourself tonight. If you're here tonight and you haven't come back to God, if you're just thinking about it, if you're still at the resolution stage, if you haven't actually made that return, what a comfort to you that Jesus knows that situation, that Jesus knows you, that Jesus sees you, that Christ's eye is upon you. But please don't make that a reason for delay. Some people, you see, will say, well, God knows all about me. And I can leave myself confidently under the knowledge of God. And therefore I'll just be happy to wait while I am where I am just now. And if he's going to save me, he's going to save me. Please don't make the fact that Christ sees all of us, knows us in our lostness, knows us in our, knows us in our wandering from him. Don't make that a reason to be indifferent, to be inactive. We said this morning that the Bible uh, actually brings to us our responsibilities. There is, of course, God's side to our repentance. Repentance is a saving grace of God. He gives us the spirit of repentance, the grace of repentance. But the Bible addresses us in our responsibility to repent, our responsibility to come back to God. And that's what's represented by this Son and by the Father looking out for Him. Jesus tonight is looking out for returning prodigals. Remember we said that this doesn't mean this prodigal doesn't just represent some who've fallen on really hard times and have personal problems in their lives that are obvious to other people. This represents everyone who's lost, that has gone away from God, that needs to return to God. People living in a very high social order are included. Here he is, he's come back. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Then we read he had compassion. He felt compassion. 
It's not just that he saw him making his way back, that his mind was set upon him and had always been upon him. He had never forgotten him. He had never let him out of his sight. But when he saw him coming back, his compassion is moved. It's not the beginning of his compassion, but his compassion is intensified, if you like, as he sees the sun on the horizon, as he knows he's making his way back, as his eye catches him plodding his way back home, his compassion flows out to him. And that's one of the great features of these Gospels that give us a record of the ministry of Jesus, of the life of Jesus, that so often you find this word used of Christ, compassion. It really means a stirring of his inner parts. It's not something cold and calculated. It's not something to do with like a scientific formula or a mathematical formula which says repentance, I receive you, I'll give you forgiveness, just doing it sort of that equals that. This is Christ's heart exposed to you. This is Christ's compassion revealed to you. This is the warm heart of Jesus Christ. You know, when he fed, when he fed the multitude, the 5,000, with the few loaves and fish that he began with and miraculously by his power multiplied so that that fed the multitude, You read there that he looked out on those people sitting there on the hillside that had come to hear his teaching, that had been with him for a long time and hadn't eaten for some time. When he saw the multitude, he said, I have compassion on them. I will not send them away hungry in case they fall, in case they faint. There's the compassion of Jesus as he sees the people in their need. It's drawn out towards them. Where would you and I be tonight if the compassion of Christ was not real? If the compassion of Christ was a figment of our own imagination? If you believe the people that tell you today out there, this Bible is just full of fairy stories. And however much this figure of Christ might have once lived, we can't be sure about anything at all about him. Perhaps one or two details, but when you come to read about miracles, when you come to read about this sort of insight that he had into people's lives, when you come to read parables here that represent him, don't actually accept that was okay for that generation. They believed in those things then, and they believed in those things until fairly recently, but science has disproved that. No, it hasn't. Science cannot disprove or prove what is spiritual doesn't have access to it. And if it has some measure of access to it, it doesn't at all mean that it disproves what is supernatural. People may think in their minds they've done away with the idea of supernatural and miraculous. But here is the Word of God, this account that we have of the ministry of Jesus. And here he is represented here in saying, in saying, his compassion flowed out towards his returning son. My friend, tonight Christ's compassion is designed for sinners. It's for the likes of you and I to be stirred by, to be moved by, to come back to him, to have his compassion as one of our great motivating factors as we look at his life to say Lord 
How can I refuse such compassion, such a heart as that, such overtures of love? Well, you see, God, God doesn't have to be. He didn't have to be. He wasn't obliged to be compassionate toward us sinners in our fallenness and our rebellion against Him. He's not obliged to do that. It's an act of His will that is merciful. But being compassionate, He is obliged to act in that compassionate way. God is not compassionate and then chooses not to show it. If you were to mark iniquity, is what we sang, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you. There is compassion with you. Why? So that we may come to fear you and to know you and to respect you and to know you as you are. And with compassion, what did he next do? He ran towards him. He saw him a long way off. He felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now that would be offensive to the Pharisees because this was a relatively old man in the parable that represents Jesus here, although he wasn't an old man. But uh, here is uh, something the Pharisees would have been following in terms of listening to what Jesus was saying. They'd have found this offensive. It wasn't becoming of an oldish person to actually run. That was demeaning in their eyes. But Christ is unconventional to the human mind, isn't he? Doesn't do the things that people expect. You can't fit him into a box of our own human thinking and say, well, that's the kind of Jesus that I would expect. He's not like that. It's, uh, in C.S. Lewis's writing, it's Aslan the lion, isn't it? It is not tameable. And yet he's wonderfully compassionate. He has all this almighty power, but he uses it for our redemption. And so he runs towards this returning prodigal. And notice that's what he does. He throws his arms around him and kisses him. And just imagine what that means. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son hadn't cleaned himself up. He hadn't said, I'm going back to my father's house so I'd better really get some new clothes and I'd better tidy myself up. I'd better wash my hair and my hands and my body. He had just come from a filthy way of life. He had come with spending his time with pigs, scrabbling around for something to eat. He would have been pleased to eat of the pods that the pigs were eating, but nobody gave him anything. Just imagine his wretched condition. Would you and I have come near him? Would we have embraced him? Would we have thrown our arms around him and clasped him to our chest, to our bosom? Would we have kissed him in that condition? Of course not. But we're not Jesus. And this represents that Jesus receives returning sinners penitent sinners still in need of being forgiven in need of being cleaned up in need of being set right with God but as he looks out on us sees us in the filth of our sin he doesn't say to us you go and clean yourself up 
before you ever think of coming near to me. He doesn't say that, does he? Come as you are. Come with your sins in repentance, yes. But don't try and tidy yourself up. Let him do that. Let him wash you. Let him receive you. Let him clean you up. Let him change your life. Turn it around. So he embraces his son. There's Christ's eagerness to receive repentant sinners. And what you take from that is this. Wherever reluctance exists, it's not in the heart of Christ. Wherever there's a reluctance for us to come to know Christ as our Savior, to know His embrace, to know His forgiveness, to know His reception, the reluctance is certainly not on His side. If you're in, not in Christ tonight, if you've not come to Him, if you're here tonight and you're not yet saved, if you're still in the far country, the reason for staying there is your own reluctance, not that of Jesus. That's where the reason lies. That's the hub of the problem. It's not on his side. Accept this for what it says. Return to him. And this is what you'll find. This is what you'll find as to who he is and what his response will be. Secondly, there's Christ's welcome for repentant sinners. Well, he came, this father came, he ran towards him and uh, clasped him and kissed him. The kiss of reconciliation. And you notice what's happening in that is that in that wonderful embrace, what is happening is the father is really hiding the son's past in that great embrace. doesn't matter what he's done He's not going to hold that against him. He's not going to say to him, well, um, I will embrace you just now, but that will be as far as it goes, and you won't get into the house until you do something else, and I'm not going to treat you as, you, as my son. The past is forgotten. The past is the past. It's buried in the Father's embrace. You see, Christ's compassion, Christ's affection, Christ's compassion is that out of which reconciliation flows. And this kiss is the kiss of ultimate sincerity. You contrast that with the kiss of Judas. Judas Iscariot, the ultimate in hypocrisy, in delivering over the Lord to be crucified. Here's Christ's kiss, the kiss of ultimate sincerity. And you notice something else. It's wonderfully detailed, this passage, and seems to be very deliberate here that there's no account of the prayer that the son was practicing or had said to himself that he was going to use when he reached his father. He said to him, he, he said before he actually came back, this is what I'm going to do. I'll go back to my father, verse 18. I'll say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so you come through to verse 20, 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's it. The embrace of the father has stopped the matter there. And even though he is still convinced he's no longer worthy to be called a son, he doesn't go as far as to say, make me one of your hired servants. Before he can get the words out, the father has a command 
that he's going to have a very different status altogether to a servant. And there's such a lot of meaning in that where you find that not only does Jesus not delay to bestow the status of sonship upon us when we come to him, not only is he far from being reluctant to receive us back as penitent sinners coming back from the far country, but he also has in this kiss of reconciliation you might say almost a hurry to put the past behind us and to persuade us and to assure us that whatever else is going to be true what he's got in store for us is not the lowest but the highest point in his family he's going to restore him to sonship and that's the second point the kiss of reconciliation there's then the command for restoration before the son can get out these words that he has practiced that he's going to say to him father make me one of your hired servants the father speaks the father said to his servants there's this interruption there at verse 22 but the father said you can see how it's interrupting what the son was saying in his prayer but the father said to his servants bring quickly the best robe don't delay with this bring quickly the best robe and put it on them and put a ring on his hands and shoes on his feet bring the fattened calf kill it and we're going to celebrate what a wonderful description of the Savior. What a wonderful description of how Jesus welcomes repentant sinners. Having in his eagerness sought his return. Here he is now that he's returned. Welcoming this penitent son back into his own family life. It's a full restoration. Now think of the son's condition. It was right to say, and we said that this morning, that when we come to realize our own true state as sinners, separate from God, when we come to realize where we are and come to resolve to come back to God and to come back and come back we do, we do say to God, Father, I am not worthy. Lord, I'm not worthy. The very least that you give will be sufficient for me. But he quietens that and says, we won't listen to that. That's not what it's going to be about. You're going to have dignity. You're going to be restored to sonship. And I'm going to give you things which will confirm that that's what I've made you. See what he's saying? Here he is saying, bring forth, bring quickly the best robe and put it on them. Uh, it doesn't mean that he didn't actually get him to wash first of all we can presume that uh, before it was actually put on him that perhaps he washed himself and the same with, with his hands and his feet but in any case he, they had to do it quickly bring quickly the best robe and put it on him his own filthy rags are no longer relevant they're going to have to be put off they're no longer they're just dumped they've gone in the bin and instead the best robe in the house is given to him can you imagine that? Can you imagine that happening in real life? Well, probably not. Although in some cases, of course, you would, in terms of parent-parental love. But this is certainly true of God. This is certainly true of Jesus. 
where the, the clothes that we come to him in, these filthy clothes, the rags of our sin, the rags of our sinful life, our wasted life, the Lord says to us, these are behind you, take them off, I've got something for you, something I'm going to clothe you with, something that will dignify you. The best robe that I've got, it's yours. And of course the Bible speaks, you could amplify that, the Bible speaks about God in Christ covering his people, doesn't he? Covering us with righteousness, covering us with the spiritual clothes that he admires himself and looks upon and says, this is now very good. That's really what this is saying to us. When God takes away the filthy clothes of your sinful past and dumps them, he gives you something entirely opposite. The best that he's got. Do you want the best that God has? What a difference to the life that he once lived. He was saying, I'm going to take the things that are due to me. Father, give me these things. He took them to the far country. And now he's saying, I'm going to have the best time. And it was imprisonment. It was bondage. And now that he's back in the Father's house and in the Father's embrace, the Father brings, brings this uh, command to the servants, give him the best that I've got. You know, I think some people sometimes refuse to come to Christ because it just seems too good to be true. What awaits them there just seems too good to be true. The best that God has, the clothes that He has manufactured and woven, through the obedience and suffering and death of His Son, through His death and resurrection, the spiritual clothes that God has actually woven, that has this designer label made by God, the best that He has, that's what He's got for penitent sinners. That's what awaits you when you come back to Him. That's what you have tonight, all of you who have come back. Don't ever underestimate the quality of your spiritual clothes. When you look at them and admire them, remember who made them. Remember where they came from. Remember they're the best that God has. And then a ring. Not only the clothes, he said, put a ring on his finger. This ring, this wonderful uh, symbol of his status, this finger that was so filthy when he came back from his wanderings, when he came back from the far country, from scrabbling with the pegs for the things that they were eating, trying to get something to fill his belly with. Just imagine how dirty his hands, his fingers were. What are they like now? He's wearing a ring with the family signet, the family crest on it. Just to show... You are my son. You belong to this family. You have a right to be here that I have given you, is what he's saying. And the wonderful thing is that that's too how it is with, with God. He gives us the right to sonship. Remember that great uh, text in John chapter 1, verse 12. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them he gave 
the right to give the, th- the authority. It's in your AV, it's the power, but it's really a word that means authority, a right. To them he gave the right to be sons of God, to be children of God. People come to us maybe and say, you don't have a right to be a Christian. You don't have a right. No, I don't have a right myself to be a Christian. But I have a God-given right to be a Christian because he's given it to me. And the Father has honored, God the Father, I mean, has honored God the Son by conferring the right of sonship upon all of those who have come to him in penitence and repentance and upon whom he has placed the robe of his righteousness. He has given them the assurance they're no longer servants in his house. They are sons. They have the best that God could give. They have a ring on their finger, spiritually speaking, that testifies to who they belong to and what family they belong to. And that they are indeed the family of God. And he puts shoes on his feet. He came back without shoes. Rembrandt has a great portrait of the returning prodigal. If you study it, it's so full of details from this chapter. You'll find the older brother skulking in the background in the shadows. You find the, uh, the son, the younger son on his knees. In the presence of his father, you'll find, find his, his father's hand upon him and the whole center of that photo. The light that Rembrandt has chosen to actually place in that photo is on the father's face and on his hand. Because that's the essence of what it's about. And you can see the son's feet, his, his bedraggled shoes, his, his worn out shoes are still on his feet. You just get the impression that once he's on his feet, he's going to be given the best shoes as well. Because being without shoes was a sign of a slave. He's not a slave. Though he'd have been happy to be one of the father's slaves, as he himself said, not worthy to be called your son, but the father is saying to him, Jesus is saying to us, I know what you're saying. I accept what you're saying, that of yourself you're not worthy to be my son, to be one of my children. But I've got the best for you. I've died to secure the best for you. And I'm not going to treat you as a a slave, but as a son, as one of my family. That may seem very inappropriate, it was to the older brother, Seemed completely out of place. What does he say? Look, he said, These many years I've served you, and when this son of yours came, he's not even prepared to call him his brother. When the son of yours came, was devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. And his father said, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. Here's the heart of Jesus again in responding to that complaint of the Pharisees that he was receiving sinners and eating with them. Yes, restoration carries right to sonship. Where are you and I tonight? You come back to him. 
Are you still not in the Father's house? Have you come back to Jesus in response to his own call to you? Come to me and I will give you rest. And you can see thirdly Christ's joy in that. It was, it was fitting, he said, the Father said, that we, be, that we celebrate and be glad. The, the fatted calf, this was a special calf usually kept for celebrations. And it was a cause to celebrate. And indeed you find that near the beginning of the chapter where he says, I tell you in verse 7, there will be joy, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Don't think it's just the angels that rejoice. What it says is there's joy in the presence of the angels. The Savior rejoices. The heart of Jesus is glad over every sinner that comes back to him. You know, that's saying something about our non-return. If the heart of Christ is indeed filled with delight and joy over sinners repenting and coming back to him, what does it say about those who don't? What does it say about the seriousness of refusing to come back? Christ's joy is it over you? And if you haven't come back to him, will it be over you tonight? Will you not make the Savior glad if you haven't done it already? By coming back to him and by responding to his love and to his call. Elizabeth Browning, who became the wife of the poet Robert Browning, was born into a family of 12 children. Her father was very domineering, very, very strict. And in fact, he told all his children that they were not allowed to marry. He forbade them to marry. And at 15, Elizabeth became very ill. She had head and spinal pains, which lasted the rest of her life. So she developed a love for poetry, spending much of her time in a room and in the 1830s and 1840s, she became a very popular writer. And she got the attention through that of Robert Browning himself, a poet at that time. And so, once they got to know each other, Elizabeth actually ran off with him. And they, they married in secret and moved to Italy. And her father completely disowned her. And for the next ten years... Elizabeth wrote to him regularly from Italy beautiful letters, poetic letters, trying to mend the relationship with her father. These letters can be read today because they're in the form of, of a book. She never once received a response from her father. And a year before her father died, she received a box in the mail from him. Imagine her excitement after all these years, ten years, sending him letters regularly, yet not even responded once. And here's this box coming from him. And when she opened the box, she was massively disappointed. Because here were all her letters that she had ever sent, unopened in this box. What a tragedy. 
even if he had just read one, it might even have melted his cold and stubborn heart. Friends, the Bible is God's letters to us. They contain many beautiful appeals to us to return to him, to restore a broken relationship that we have, by our sins, have caused. I know you read them. Please go beyond reading them. Please respond to what they're saying. Go back to God. As we read in Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you for the pardon that is so abundant with you. We ask that you would enable us to open our hearts to you. We know that you address us through your word, that you continue to speak to us, that your appeals to us in the gospel come to be heard by us outwardly. We pray, Lord, that each of us here may know that response of penitence and faith, for we know that you're waiting to receive penitent sinners back. We know the quality of your welcome. We know what you will give to us as we come to you. And Lord, we ask that you would give us to be the cause of joy in the presence of the angels in coming to repent of our sin, in coming to receive you and to be received by you. Bless us, we pray now. Continue with us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's conclude by singing Psalm 107. 107 in this uh, Sing Psalms version. Uh, singing to the tune, St. George's Edinburgh. And that's on page 144. We're singing verses 17 to 22 of Psalm 107. Some erred through their rebellious ways and for their sins paid dear. All kinds of food revolted them. The gates of death drew near. Then in despair they sought the Lord. He saved them from their doom. His word went forth with healing power and kept them from the tomb. So for the Lord's unfailing love, let them give thanks again. And for the awesome deeds of power which he achieves for men, let them prepare a sacrifice and bring an offering in praise of all his mighty acts. Let them rejoice and sing. These two verses, some erred through their rebellious ways. Summer through the rebellious ways and for their sins
door here to my right this evening. Lord, we pray now that your blessing will accompany the food we are to partake of at the fellowship. We ask for your presence to be known to us there. And we ask now that your grace and your mercy and your peace be our portion now and evermore. Amen. <laughs>